Our text this morning is Romans chapter 4, the first eight verses. We are continuing our series, What We Believe on the Apostles' Creed, the Foundations of the Christian Faith. Last week we looked at a foundational belief about judgment for sin. This week we look at the solution to that problem, the forgiveness of sins. If you please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Romans chapter 4 beginning at verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing to the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, open our eyes. Open our eyes that we may see wondrous things in your word. Lord, we would long to see Jesus. And so we ask that in your word, by the power of your spirit you would bring us face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. The Bible has much to say about sin. We looked at a great deal of that last week. But the Bible has even more to say about the forgiveness of sins. That's because... What we think about the forgiveness of sins and what the Bible declares aren't always the same. As a matter of fact, what the Bible declares about the forgiveness of sins is counter to our instincts. It's counter to our first mode of thinking. Our first mode of thinking when we have done something wrong, if we're honest with ourselves, is we want to do something else to make up for it. We see this all the time in families, don't we? If there is a spat among spouses, if the husband has done something wrong, how does he resolve the problem? Well, he goes out and he buys flowers. Cover up the wrongdoing with flowers. If in the home, the child has disobeyed, done something that they were not supposed to do, how do they fix it? Well, they do a bunch of chores. They clean up their room, they, they do things, and they present that to mom and dad to, as if to say, here, look at what I've done, don't worry about that other stuff. It's instinctual to us 
to try to cover our sin with our own works. So much so that as we look once again briefly at the survey we have been looking at each week, a survey of Americans and in particular self-described evangelicals, I think we see this morning that on this fundamental doctrine, as a matter of fact, I'm not sure for us there could be anything more important to learn than how we can have our sins forgiven. Many evangelicals are confused. When they were faced with this statement, an individual must contribute his or her own effort for personal salvation, an astounding 78% of evangelicals agreed. That means 78% either agree or are confused about the notion of salvation and works and grace. I tend to think here that confusion takes the day because the second statement is more direct. It's as if they followed up with a a statement that would be easier to understand. By the good deeds that I do, I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven. I don't know that you could come up with a better statement for works righteousness. And 38% of evangelicals agreed. Now, the good news is that the majority has dropped to a a plurality. But the bad news is that 38% of evangelicals in this survey are confused about the gospel and what it means to be forgiven. So we're going to look this morning at what the Bible teaches about the forgiveness of sins because it is fundamental. This is a truth that we must not only know but must grip our lives. It is how we live we're going to see first and foremost that forgiveness is not by works. Regardless of what people think in a survey, the Bible declares emphatically that salvation is not of works. And Paul declares that emphatically here in our text this morning. The second is the alternative, that the Bible does declare that forgiveness is by grace. It is not of works, but it is of grace. It is the grace of God that comes to us, how we find forgiveness. So let's begin then by thinking about the context for forgiveness, the context about sin. Remember what we looked at last week, that the Bible teaches that every single person has sinned, without exception. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible also taught us that even the smallest of sins deserve punishment. So everyone sins, and everyone's sins count, as it were. They are all deserving of punishment. And this is because sin at its core is rebellion against God. All of sin is in some way shaking your fist at God. Sin enslaves us. And leads to yet more sin. It's something that controls us and we cannot escape. And the ultimate end of sin is death. Eternal death. Now, it's important for us to understand the concept of sin because that drives us to forgiveness. Because after all, if we believe what the Bible says about sin, we are affected. Who would choose death? 
Who would knowingly choose punishment? And if we know from the scriptures that we cannot avoid sin, that all sin, and that we cannot avoid punishment, then this tells us we cannot solve the problem. And so we need to find a way of salvation. And there are always two ways of salvation. There is either salvation by works or salvation by grace. That is salvation by what I do or by what I am given. And the vast majority of religions throughout the world, actually all except biblical Christianity, teach salvation by some sort of work. They teach that what I do makes me right with God. Now, what I do may change in accordance with the religion. I may have to do special services, pray special prayers, do special works of good deeds. I may just have to generally be a good person. I may have to honor my parents. Who knows what it is? But this is at the core of all the religions of the world. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. Because it's this kind of thinking that makes us feel in control, doesn't it? If I can do something, I can solve the problem. Every husband understands this, don't you? When your wife comes to you with a problem, what's the first thing you want to do? Fix it. The quicker the better. And we actually don't like it, ladies, when you won't let us fix it. That makes us angry. Because we want to fix things. That's the way of thinking. And this carries over, I hate to say it, ladies, you do the same thing in the spiritual realm. God tells you where you fall short, and your first response is, how can I fix it? Can I pray more? Can I do more good things? Can I be kind to others? What can I do? Tell me, God, and I'll do it. And the irony here is, is that we've already heard from the scripture that sin is completely out of our control. Sin is something that enslaves us, that drags us down, that condemns us, and we're looking for a solution to control the uncontrollable. It doesn't make any sense at all. But you see, what happens is works... Our works in the realm of salvation make us sovereign. That is, when we see salvation by our works, we're the ones who are in charge. There is the obvious that what I do makes the difference. And this fits our natural tendency, our tendency to want to be independent. We want to fix these things. The emphasis is on me. Now, we see this even among those who claim the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. I can think of what is probably the worst bumper sticker I have ever seen on a car, ever, that sometimes is on the cars of Christians. It's a simple one. It says, God is my co-pilot. Now, on one level, I understand that. I'm glad that you're not going down I-10 sitting in the passenger seat. I'm glad you're holding on to the wheel. But what is that bumper sticker actually saying? It says, I'm the pilot. I determine the direction of where we go. I determine how fast we go. I determine my own life. God is just sort of along on the ride. 
Now, it sounds better than someone that says, God's not even in my car. But when we really think about it, what we're saying is God is not important. If we have a salvation by works, we don't need God. We only need ourselves. God's just along for the ride. In the final analysis, I'm the one that makes the difference. I'm the one that counts, not God. I'm the one that has to do the work. And so what Paul does here, it's interesting, is he takes us back to the most famous Old Testament saint. He takes us back to Abraham. And he says in verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Think about who Abraham is and what he's done. Abraham left his land and his family to follow God. Abraham built up an army. Abraham won wars. Abraham offered up his son Isaac when God told him to. If anyone was a difference maker, it's Abraham. If anyone could have been saved by works, it's Abraham. His works are beyond anything we could possibly do. As a matter of fact, this was the view of many of the Jews of Paul's day. They wrote about Abraham in this way. For Abraham was perfect in all of his actions with the Lord and was pleasing through righteousness all of the days of his life. Now, I guess their edition of their Bible didn't have the part where Abraham lies or where Abraham offers up his wife to the king as his sister. We find that Abraham, our father, had performed the whole law before it was given. Now the problem with this is, it cuts against everything that the Bible teaches about sin. And so what Paul does is, he tells us, in the final analysis here, we need to not look to ourselves, we need to look to God. Now do you notice what's missing in Romans 4? There's no mention of any of the great deeds that Abraham did. Paul doesn't point us to Abraham at all. If salvation were by works, if forgiveness of sins were by something we do, don't you think Paul would have said, look at all the great things Abraham did. Be like Abraham. But we don't find that at all. As a matter of fact, who does Paul point us to? He points us away from Abraham and toward God. He points us to the one whom Abraham believed. And this is always the choice that you and I have. We can either look to ourselves, or we can look to God. If this morning you are trusting in what you have done, or in what you think you can do, then what you are saying is, I don't need God. That's what a flawed view of forgiveness brings you to. Paul then moves to his next point. If we are saved by works, then we can boast. Look again at verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Now, this makes sense. I get to take the credit for what I do. Now, I want you to notice that Paul is making a principial point. He's not saying that Abraham should be able to go around and pound his chest and yell at the top of his lungs. Because, you see, we have to acknowledge 
We don't really like people who boast, do we? Even if it's deserved. Nobody likes the NFL receiver prima donna who is constantly telling you that he's the best player on the team and he's the only reason that they win. Right? We don't like that at all. And yet at the same time, we can acknowledge that someone who is an athlete who is good at what they do has grounds for boasting. We will perhaps boast for them. We'll talk about who's the greatest quarterback of all time. Who are the top basketball players of all time. And we will acknowledge that what they have done deserves respect and boasting after a fashion. But what Paul is saying here is that if we believe we can save ourselves by our works, then we have a ground for boasting that somehow we are greater than sin. We can defeat sin ourselves. And that we have within ourselves the ability to restore our relationship with the infinite, eternal, living God. Now when we stop and think about it that way, it gives us pause. Because you see, the minute we say, I can do things to be right with God, what we are declaring is, I'm better than all those other people. Look at me. God loves me. He loves me because I'm a snappy dresser. He loves me because I do good things. I know he doesn't love all those other people. They're just not as good as me. If they watched me, they could try to be as good as me, and maybe God would love them. Now, we don't say that out loud, because as soon as I do, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But that's the theology behind salvation by works and having a grounds of boasting. And another question that comes up is, who gets to set the standard for what works count and how good they need to be? Have you ever had the experience of listening to someone boast about something that's extremely ordinary? Someone walks up to you and says, I am just a running machine. I have been taking up jogging. I am a running machine. I, I, who knows how good I could be? Really? How far did you run last week? Well, I ran a quarter of a mile. And you know what? I did it in a half an hour. If you could believe that. What? Really? Because that's not that impressive. What do you mean that's not impressive? Last week it took me an hour. I cut my time in half. You see, who gets to set the standard? Have you noticed that those who want to save themselves by what they do try to set the standard exactly where they know they can meet it? That's the story of the Pharisees in the New Testament. For all of their rules, for all of their regulations, for all of their laws, have you ever noticed that they always are in exactly the place where they can make it? It's like performing a high jump. If I were to set that pole on the, on the bars for the high jump, I would set it at about, I don't know, about six inches. And I would be able to make it. I'm not setting it at 12 feet, because I'm not going to embarrass myself. Six inches. And then I'll easily hurdle it. You see, when we have a view of forgiveness of sins by works, it's because we want to be in control and we want to control the outcome. 
God doesn't matter. We want to be able to boast in ourselves. What Paul says, though, is not before God in verse 2. That is, if Abraham could be justified by works, and here that's a big if because he's not. He might have a boasting ground, but not before God because no one can stand before a perfect, holy, omnipotent, omniscient God and boast. No one. That's what the scripture teaches us. Thirdly, we see that if salvation is by works, if forgiveness is by works, not only do we not need God, not only are we seeking to boast, but we are saying that sin doesn't matter either. Because if forgiveness of sins is by works, then we are owed something from God. This is clear. Look at verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. When an employer pays an employee for working, it's not a gift, is it? It's an obligation that's paid. Those of you that are in the workforce, how many on payday come in with a thank you card and write thank you to your boss? Thank you for paying me. No. But those of us that have ever received gifts, especially kids whose parents make them write thank you notes, you know who you are. When you get a gift for your birthday, you have to write a thank you card because it's a gift. You know, if payday came and you did not receive your paycheck, you wouldn't say, oh, well, I guess the boss decided not to give me money. You'd walk in and you'd say, where's my money? You owe me. I've worked all week. You see, that's the difference between working and believing. If we work, then God is obligated to forgive us. If we receive forgiveness by what we do, then God is our debtor. He owes us forgiveness, whether he wants to or not. And what it means is we think what we do is more important than sin. That we can cancel out sin because of what we have done. We are saying that sin can't be something that merits eternal punishment because we fix it with temporal works. We say that sin is not something that incapacitates us because we can fix it. And sin can't be something out of our control because we got this. Right? It's declaring that it's not that big of a deal. Sin doesn't really matter. We've got this. We can handle sin. How many of you have seen this when your children help you in the kitchen? You always know there's a point, no matter how young they are, where if you're working with a mixing bowl or trying to put ingredients together, inevitably one of the kids will say, no, 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 I got this. Give me the spoon. No, I don't need your help. I got this. Right? And you're sitting there thinking, I hope there's not flour all over the house. Because you know they really don't got this. You want to encourage them, but there's a reason why they're helping. You see, when we think we've got it, we're lost. We can't bring the solution. 
We're saying that it's not that big of a deal, that we can handle sin because it's not a real problem. And this goes against everything that the Bible teaches about sin. It goes against everything that the Bible teaches about God. And it shows us today the importance of having a whole-orbed theology. That we don't just learn from the Bible about God, but we learn about God, and we learn about ourselves, and we learn about sin, and we learn about grace, and we learn about forgiveness, because they all come together of a piece. And when we deny the Bible's truth about forgiveness, we're really denying the Bible's truth about sin. Let me put it for you very simply. The bigger you think you are, the smaller you think God and sin are. So where do we turn from here? We've seen that the Bible describes the devastating effects of sin. We've seen that a just God must punish sin. And we've seen that we can provide no solution by our works. Where do we go? Where we go is to see that forgiveness is by grace. It is by grace that comes from God. This is the great message of the gospel. Look up just a bit from our text at Romans 3.23. We looked at that last week where Paul told us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But keep reading. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, God brings the solution to sin, and the solution to sin is found in His grace. It is the gift of God that comes to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus is at the core of what we believe. It's why the religion of the Bible is called Christianity. Jesus Christ is at the center. Not because he was a good teacher. Not because he did some good things and he brought healing and he brought comfort. No, it's because Jesus is the only way to the forgiveness of sins. There is no other way. And this is what we would never expect. You see, what we think is we need to earn what is given to us. We think what we need and want is fairness. And what God tells us is He gives to us what is not fair. He gives to us what we don't deserve. His grace. He's not going to change who He is. He's not going to change His character. He's not going to change His law. He's not going to change His word. He will be just, and yet the justifier of the ungodly. And he does this in Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins comes from God by his grace. For what does the scripture say, verse 3? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So how then does this forgiveness become ours? It can't be because of something that we do, and yet we have to get it. We need it. How it comes to us is by faith, by believing. 
Abraham was forgiven, Paul writes, because he believed God. And this is something that the scripture emphasizes over and over again. In Genesis 15, we are told that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. In Romans 4, Paul repeats the scripture that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says again that justification is by faith because Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Well, what did Abraham believe? What he believed in was the promise of God. The promise of God, summarized in chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Now, what had God promised? He promised To bless Abraham. He promised to be a God to him and to his descendants after him. He promised him an atonement. A sacrifice that was fulfilled. Do you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac as they were climbing the mountain? Because God had told Abraham to sacrifice his son. And Isaac is a pretty sharp cookie. I know that because the Bible tells me he looks at his dad and said... Father, I see the wood. I see we can make fire. Don't see the sacrifice. What's going on here? And do you remember Abraham's response? Son, God himself will provide himself the sacrifice. Abraham believed God. He believed that when God said it, it was true. And he could put... All that he had staked upon it. He even believed in the promise of resurrection. For Hebrews tells us, as Abraham was climbing that mountain, remember God had promised to make of Abraham many nations, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And that those descendants would come through his son Isaac. And then he tells Abraham to kill Isaac. And so what does Abraham conclude? Well, if God has to, he'll bring Isaac back from the dead. Because the only other alternative is God to break his promise. And he can never break his promise. So I have to believe that God is the God of resurrection as well. You see, Abraham believed what God had told him. And that belief... That receiving by faith is receiving the grace of God, the forgiveness and pardon that comes in Jesus Christ. It has to be either one way or the other. Paul sets up opposites in verses 4 and 5. You can either work in verse 4 and get what you are owed. Or you can believe in verse 5 and you can have the gift of God. These two principles don't mix. You can't say, I'll pick verse 5, I'll believe in God, but I've just got to do a couple of things. No. As soon as you introduce anything you have done into the equation, grace is no longer grace. How do I know that? God has told us that. He told us in Romans chapter 11, 
But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. God's told you, you can't mix works and grace. Grace must be received by faith, by empty hands that acknowledge the work of God. And this is available to everyone. The one who works cannot stand before God, Paul tells us in verse 2. But the one who believes is forgiven no matter what. Look at the word that Paul uses. To the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly. Now, this may not have the same connotation for you. But I want you to see that when the Bible uses this term, it means something that's worse than evil. Worse than wicked. The ungodly is someone who rebels against God and hates God. Do you know who are called the ungodly in the Bible? The worst of the worst sinners. The first place we see this word is in those who mocked Noah and refused to enter the ark. They were ungodly. Do you know who else is referred to as the ungodly in Scripture? The inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those who the Bible identifies as the worst of sinners. They are ungodly. And what Paul tells us is, even the ungodly can find forgiveness of sins because of the grace of God. That should give you great hope here this morning. Know full well that the pastor does not know everything you do. I don't have cameras in your home. I'm not tape recording all of your conversations. I don't know the worst things that you have done. As a matter of fact, when I see you, you're almost always on your best behavior. But I know that you are a person like me. And I know you haven't seen me at my worst. You don't have cameras in my house. You don't record all my conversations. And because I know you are like me, I know you are in need of a Savior. That your sins are deep and wicked. That they're out of your control. That without Jesus Christ, you are without hope to battle your sins. But in Christ, you have the victory because even the ungodly are justified, are righteous God says, not just forgiven, but forgiven and made righteous in Christ. This morning, will you give up on your own works? Will you turn to God? Will you believe what He has promised? Will you look to the cross of Jesus Christ where you have been given forgiveness? Finally, we see that the greatness of God's forgiveness is in its surety, in its sureness. Because forgiveness by grace also tells us that we are counted as righteous. The source of our forgiveness depends upon God. We do nothing to receive it, so we cannot fail. Just think about it. Not having to work means you can't mess up. Have you ever had the experience of failing at something or running out of time for something? Taking a test in which you know the material 
and you have confidence and you're working away and then you look up at the clock and you realize there is no way you can finish in the allotted time? The clock doesn't run out on Jesus. You don't need to work. Jesus has already done Forgiveness that we have by God's grace is rooted in the objective work of Jesus Christ, in the life that he lived and in the atoning death that he died. And this forgiveness is not just a blank slate. It's not just a wiping away of your sins. It is much more. It is a positive righteousness. Look at verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, this language, counted, is very precise language. It is accounting language. Now, have you ever worked with an accountant? They're very precise, right? They're not like me with my checkbook. If I were to ever balance my checkbook, if I get within like a couple of bucks, I'm good. I am not going to spend three hours tracking down 43 cents that doesn't reconcile. I'm going to write, reconcile, 43, and call it a day. Not an accountant. They will work and work and work if it's a penny off, right? Because they've got to. And you see, that's the kind of language here that Paul is using. It is accounted, it is reckoned, set on your side is righteousness. If you picture your life as having two ledgers, a credit and a debit side, It is not only true that Jesus has paid the debt. It is that a credit has been placed in your account. You are not just debt free. You are rich in Jesus Christ. You are righteous, seen as perfect, dressed in the righteous robes of Jesus. This is why David cannot help but exalt, as we see here, In verses 6 through 8, David speaks of the blessing to the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. The one who is forgiven is made right with God. David says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Are you weighed down by sin this morning? Are you weighed down by regret? Well, the Bible tells us that there is hope. There is no sin so great, but that it cannot be forgiven in Christ. God says this to us in two ways through David. He says the worst of his sins, the lawless deeds that he have, are covered over to be seen no more by God. They are put away. God remembers them no more. But at the same time, God also does not count our sin against us. He uses the most emphatic negative that you can in the scripture. Now, you know how negatives work in English? That if you string two negatives together, it's a positive? I'm not not going there. That means I'm going there, right? In the biblical languages, in Hebrew and in Greek, it doesn't work that way. Negatives pile on top of each other to make them more negative. It's like a double plus negative. It's like I'm really not going there. You know I'm not going there, right? 
That's what Paul is saying here. That's what David is saying here. He's saying the Lord will not ever, no way, no how, count the sin against the one who believes. Remember, it doesn't depend on you. Now this is why we needed to hear the bad news about sin. We needed to see how clearly hopeless we are in the case of sin. Because only when we realize how hopeless we are, will we give up trying. If we still think there's a chance, we'll still try to work. And so God impresses it upon us that there is no chance. We must give up working in order to receive grace because the two are opposite one another. But what a message of hope this is. Don't wait another minute. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, right now go to Jesus and find forgiveness. This is the great news of the gospel. That the forgiveness of sins is found in the grace of God that comes to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the reminder that we need Jesus. For far too often we get in our own way. We think we can handle the effects of sin. We think we can restore relationships based on what we do. And we don't seek out Jesus. Put it before our eyes each and every day, O Lord, that Jesus is our only hope. That He is our blessing. That He is our righteousness. Help us this morning to live lives that are focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask. In Christ's precious name, amen.